Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. This podcast is made possible thanks to our patrons. Please join me in welcoming and thanking new patrons. Chris Palijo, Natasha Babraham Lincoln, The Jungle Squid, Michael Sutherland, Andy Hillabofus Whitfield, Collect Nirvana, Christina De Lucia, and Caitlin Ryan. Our patrons make the show possible, so it's only fair that we reward them as much as possible. Depending on your donation tier, rewards start with shoutouts and early commercial-free access to all episodes, and go up from there to include bonus episodes, immediate access to 500 Patreon-exclusive episodes, coffee mugs, t-shirts, and more. And if you sign up for the yearly membership, you'll get 12 months for the price of 11 as a special thanks. If you'd like to see how you can support the podcast and get rewarded for doing so, please check out our reward tiers at patreon.com creepypod. And I know that if you're anything like where I live, many of us are sweltering in summer heat right now, but it's not too early to think about Halloween, and more specifically the 31 Days of Horror. While our normal submissions are closed for our Sunday and Patreon episodes, remember that our submissions are still open for Halloween and our 31 Days of Horror event. We need lots of content this year. So, while there's still opportunity please make sure to check out our submissions page at creepypod.com submissions. Now. This is Creepy, a podcast dedicated to sharing the most famous, chilling, and disturbing creepypastas and urban legends in the world. Whether these stories truly happened or are simply fabrications is for you to decide. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence and explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Creepy Presents There's a private airline that hosts horror events only on a full moon. Written by Kyle Harrison and produced by Steve Blizzen. Last year, Bloody Disgusting gave it four out of five screams. Fangoria magazine touted it as the most original haunted house concept on the market. But you shouldn't believe the reviews. No, really. Don't. Full Moon Flights is not what it seems. According to the brochure, they're a modern haunted house for fans of fear. A departure from the ordinary and a journey into the unknown where nightmares are inescapable. We don't allow guests to book flights. Instead, we let those who have the courage and curiosity to come find us, the blurbread. Everything about it screamed a publicity stunt to me. A private jetliner filled with costumed actors and jump scares designed to give people an adrenaline rush all night long. 
The latest event was this Halloween near me. And since I couldn't think of a better way to spend the evening, I decided to take a drive out to the provided coordinates where the plane was set to land. Departure time was scheduled for precisely 12.01 a.m. So I got there early, intent on documenting each and every aspect of the experience. Besides me, there were about six other cars parked at an old airstrip. A fitting place for the spooky flight to land, I thought as I looked about the dilapidated buildings. No one had used this place in a very long time, if ever. I grabbed my cell phone and a small backpack filled with emergency supplies and gear, everything that I thought I'd need for the night. But then from the looks of some of the other patrons' gear, it seemed like I was the one underprepared. First time, a woman wearing a Freddy Krueger shirt asked as she offered me a small capsule. Yeah, what's this for? I asked. Helps keep your head in the game. For a little while, anyway. She said as she stared up at the sky. Guess they want to be fashionably late, like usual. How many times have you been a passenger? I asked. I remembered reading that some claimed the event had staff hidden among the guests to try and boost interest, so everything she told me I took with a grain of salt at first. Five times? Maybe six? It's a hell of a ride, I tell you what. She answered as she extended her hand and added, I'm Isabel. Nice to meet you. Max. Same here. When are they supposed to arrive? I asked, noticing the other passengers were getting antsy. I couldn't see any signs of a plane in the sky and I wondered what sorts of showy entrance the proprietors had in mind to dazzle us. Don't know. These things are unpredictable. She lit a smoke and I wandered toward the other passengers. She trying to sell you one of those pills too, eh? A man with an Australian accent asked as I looked down on my palm where the red and white tablet was at. Is this some kind of hallucinogenic? I whispered. Don't know, mate. But I personally wouldn't risk it. The night's probably going to be crazy enough as is, he told me. You came all the way from around the world just for this? I asked. He didn't respond, but his eyes showed a story of pain and heartache. He was searching for something, but wouldn't dare disclose what. The others were not as fascinating. Two twins from Manchester were here for a birthday present to each other, and a couple of young reporters finished up our group. Considering the price of tickets for the event, I knew that to get their money's worth, they all expected an extreme fright. Twenty minutes passed, and the flight still hadn't arrived, so the taller twin, Tanya, started to make a fuss. This is so unprofessional she said as she walked toward the wide hangar bay. I gathered she was hoping to find someone to complain to, and it was the first time that I noticed we were the only ones here. I'd read online the flights were always packed to the gills. So why were there only six of us? What do you suppose is going on? Isabella asked. She wasn't as chatty either. In fact, the whole group seemed to be on edge as we followed Tanya to the other side of the airfield. Even the wind had stopped blowing. Something about the night just suddenly seemed more sinister. As we turned to go back toward where we'd parked, a sharp burst of air pierced the darkness and all of us felt it nearly knock us down. 
Tom the Aussie lost his hat and actually tumbled over as I looked up and saw the large passenger plane seemingly appear out of nowhere. It was about the size of a Delta Airline jetliner, with at least the capacity for 150 passengers or more, and painted entirely black to match the dark sky. A rumble of thunder crackled across the backdrop of the plane. As I noted, there were only a few windows, and only one entrance further showing that they intended for you to have an immersive experience once aboard. I knew it hadn't been there moments ago, and now all of a sudden it had landed? The ramp to the first class seating area was already lowered as though they'd been the ones waiting for us rather than the other way around. Isabella gave me a nudge and said nervously, I told you they know how to make an entrance. I nodded and grabbed my things headed towards the plane as I spotted one of the stewardesses gathering luggage from the other passengers. Tom was the first in line, eager to be aboard. Welcome back, Mr. Bradley. Always a pleasure to have you flying with us, the pale blonde employee said. Her face looked so perfect I half thought she was a robotic of some kind, so pristine and exact. Tom became red in the face apparently not anticipating that they would give away his apparent frequent flyer status, and then dashed up the steps to find a seat before any of us had a chance to open a conversation about it. Do you have your tickets? The stewardess asked, focusing on the twins next. Riley, the shorter one, took them out of her pocket, and both of them eagerly entered without much fanfare. I was next. Welcome back, Mr. Declan. I see you came prepared this time. The stewardess said as I took out my ticket. I gave her a look of confusion. This is my first time, I told her. The stewardess didn't blink as she ripped the ticket and told me, Of course it is. Yes, I must have confused you with someone else. I didn't bother asking any other questions as I figured it was probably part of the show and boarded the plane as well. At the front, before the first-class cabin area, two more blonde stewardesses that looked almost identical to the one I'd seen outside greeted me outside of the pilot's chambers and offered me a warm drink which resembled some kind of raspberry tonic. Before takeoff, we recommend all passengers drink this mixture. It will prevent any sort of nausea or displacement, the first woman told me. I knew it was likely they wouldn't let me board unless I downed the concoction, so I downed it hurriedly and then pushed open the curtains to look at the interior of the cabin. Much to my surprise, it looked like an ordinary jetliner would, with rows of compartments above the seats for luggage and about five seats on either side of the aisle, most of which were empty. I checked my stub to see where I was supposed to sit. Economy row C, seat 3. The Aussie was the only one of us in first class, and I almost envied his deep pockets, wondering if his experience would be entirely different from our own. Back in economy, I immediately felt a bit more cramped and claustrophobic, especially due to the dim lighting. Was that for aesthetics, I wondered, as I moved to my seat and noted I was near a window. A window that appeared to be sealed shut. A moment later, an Asian businessman appeared from the curtain and nodded, sitting down next to me. Did you get here late? I asked, not recalling him in the crowd outside. He responded in his native tongue and took a seat beside me, nervously fidgeting with his wedding ring as more passengers boarded. 
Jeez, where are all these people coming from? I asked, noticing a whole family pass us to go to third class. I reached over to my window to try and see if maybe a large group had shown up at the last minute, but then Isabella reached from the row behind me and kept me from opening it. I wouldn't do that if I were you, she warned me. I snatched my hand away, tired of her games, and pulled the shutter on the window up anyway. But the airfield didn't look familiar anymore. Instead, it seemed as though we'd landed somewhere in a busy city district like Hong Kong or Seoul. Nowhere near the same rustic countryside in Midwest America. What the hell? I whispered as Isabella shut it back. We're about to take off, and trust me, you want these closed. She warned. This time I decided to listen. Another stewardess appeared near the front of the cabin and grabbed a small speaker connected to the compartment beside her to give us a few guidelines. I couldn't help but to notice how the plane was seemingly packed full of people. Good evening. On behalf of all of us here at Full Moon Flights, we want to thank you again for joining us on this amazing journey. The captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign at this time as we go over a few instructions in the event of an emergency, she said in a sing-song voice. Honestly, she seemed a bit too chipper given the information she next presented. As you might have noticed during your arrival, there are no emergency exits or equipment aboard the flight. We've optimized the cabin to be entirely for the experience into the unknown. That being said... Should we encounter any unanticipated turbulence, we ask all passengers to remain seated. The safest bet for us to reach our destination will be your full cooperation in these circumstances. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, especially how dangerous it sounded. I heard one man behind me cuss profusely as the stewardess next explained there was no emergency oxygen on the airliner either. Rest assured that what you will be dealing with tonight will take your breath away. But if you can face it... You will get to your destination as intended, she said as she finished her announcement and then disappeared to the front of the plane. Something about the way she spoke made me very uneasy. Her choice of words felt intentionally vague. A clamor of gossip stirred as we all wondered what the hell we'd signed up for. This must be just to get us nervous, a young girl said a few rows up. I heard they intentionally make this intense before the show starts. Another man said. It made me a little calmer to hear these rumors swirl about, but I still had no idea what to expect. Behind me, Isabella squeezed my shoulder and muttered, Buckle up, Max. I obeyed her and listened as a new voice came over the intercom. This one was gruff and sounded distorted, almost inhuman. This is your captain speaking. We're T-minus three minutes to take off. I'm not sure why, but the succinct way he spoke, coupled with the way my stomach was twisting into a knot, made me very uneasy. There was no turning back. No escape, I realized. Then the plane began to move. Instinctively, I gripped the seat cushion as I felt the engines begin to roar and the plane shake and pick up speed. The Asian businessman next to me did the same, closing his eyes and seemingly chanting. Was he praying? I could hear the wheels skid against the runway and the noise grow louder as I was pushed into the seat a bit by the thrust of the engines. Then we began to ascend. The roar got louder as I looked about at some of the other passengers to see their reaction. Some were grabbing bags to puke in, 
clearly new flyers while others were excitedly counting the seconds as we kept going higher. I wasn't sure which category I fit in, but I was ready for the flight to stop its rush into the heavens. The plane shook again as we reached what I assumed was highest altitude, and the light above my seat told me I could move about the cabin freely. Immediately I turned to Isabella to get some clear understanding of what to expect, only to find she'd already unbuckled and left to the third-class cabin. I sighed in frustration, trying to get the attention of a stewardess, but the women were now standing toward the front, like statues, unblinking and looking on toward us. It was bizarre, but exactly what I expected for this sort of thing. I took a few breaths and calmed down, reminding myself that I should be trying to enjoy the experience as I saw the curtain behind the stewardesses open, and a woman wearing a geisha dress and kabuki mask enter, dancing amid the aisle toward my row. Immediately, the Asian man next to me tensed up. I saw his face had a look of panic. Was this someone he knew? Had the flight personnel secretly allowed them to board? Was he in danger? The woman got closer and then bowed respectfully toward me, clearly wanting to sit beside the businessman. I'm not sure why, but I felt obliged to let her in and moved out toward the aisle. The businessman started to shout something in alarm and tried to unbuckle. Then the woman straddled his lap. It almost looked like she wanted to make out with him as I watched her gently touch his face. He started to shout louder and I watched as the woman leaned in for a kiss. Someone squeezed my shoulder again, and I turned to see Isabella standing there. Come with me, she ordered. I half wanted to see what would happen to the man I was sitting beside, but still obeyed. Clearly, she knew more about this flight than me. As we entered third class, I found myself taking a moment to adjust to the darkness in the room. There weren't any windows back here and the only dim lighting was coming from the screens on the back of each of the seats. Miniature flat-screen televisions that all the passengers were glued to like zombies. What is this? I whispered, worried that our voices would break some of them from their trance. I believe they're doing something to them. Brainwashing, or something. I'm not sure. I was hoping you could help me get into the luggage compartment overhead she said as we made it to the middle of the aisle. I noticed that the expressions on the people's faces seemed contorted with terror or dread, as though whatever they were watching were driving them mad. Sure, but before I do that, you need to be honest with me. Why are we really here? I asked. Isabella bit her lip and glanced toward the door. We don't have time for that. The stewardesses will be here any moment. Can you break this open or not? I huffed and looked at the lock, realizing that I actually did have something that could open it up. Yeah, sure, let me go back to my luggage. Isabella told me to hurry as I returned to economy class and saw the stewardesses were now removing... something... from the seat near me. It looked like the shriveled up remains of the businessman... It looked like a corpse. Mr. Declan, your in-flight movie is about to start, the first stewardess said, and I noticed that now there was a mini-TV front on my seat as well. 
Had that always been there? What happened to the man sitting beside me? I asked. I now noticed there seemed to be red dark stains on the seat. Blood. It's best if you keep your journey to yourself and not worry about others. The stewardess said with a pleasant smile. She stood there waiting for me to comply with her instructions. Hesitantly, I sat down and put on the earphones. Everything about this was beginning to grow increasingly stranger and stranger. Not what I signed up for at all. As I activated the screen in front of me, a burst of white noise pierced my ears and I nearly knocked the headphones off. Then crashing waves filled the screen and I froze. What I was seeing didn't seem possible. It was showing me memories from my time as a child near the beach. Memories I've never shared with anyone. I watched in amazement as I saw my own mother in the waves. This was the moment that she'd taken her own life, I thought. A secret that I wanted to take to my grave. How could this flight know? The noise got louder as I heard whispers amid the waves. Something was speaking to me, telling me its own secrets. Chills ran down my spine as every moment played out exactly as I remembered it. My mother was just walking into the water, unconcerned with my cries as waves crashed over her body. The whispers got louder. It sounded just like her. Join me. It croaked. Then shots ran out amid the cabin. I jolted back to reality and saw Tom entering economy class waving a pistol about. The stewardess was his victim. Her lifeless body sprawled on the aisle in front of me, except there was no blood. She just looked like a mannequin now. What the hell, man? I shouted, standing up as he neared my seat. Don't let him harvest you, Max. You're too good for that. We can make it through this together, but you gotta help me out, you hear? He said. Other passengers were screaming as he waved the gun around, warning them to stay back. What the hell's wrong with you? They're frightened of you! I shouted. That's exactly what they want you to think. Now take me to that stupid chick you talked to earlier, the frequent flyer, he ordered. I raised my hands up defensively and we walked toward their class. Look, whatever you think this is, it's not. These are just actors. I told him as we entered the dark room. Even when I said that, I didn't fully believe it. Something deep in the pit of my stomach told me that none of this was normal. I planned to use a sudden shift in light to take advantage of him, but I never made it that far. Instead, the entire plane started to shake due to turbulence and he lost the gun. It slid across the floor as he fell on me, and I shouted to Isabel to find it. She obeyed, and I turned to punch Tom straight in the jaw as the lights of the cabin began to flicker. Then all the passengers around us started to convulse and go into shock, seemingly given a stroke due to the sudden loss of power. Amid the chaos, somehow Isabella found the weapon and aimed it toward me. Tom had already produced a knife, and I shouted for her to shoot him. Instead, she aimed at the luggage compartment over our heads. A single bullet caused the lock to blast off and several small bags fell, causing Tom's knife to become lodged in my shoulder. 
I said as I looked across at some of the passengers, begging them to help. Instead, they were beginning to attack each other. One man was mauling out his son's eyes and eating them. A woman was digging straight into her face, trying to rip skin off. And two children were smashing each other in the stomach constantly with sharp forks. Any hope I had that this was all an act died at that moment. Isabella scrambled to search him at the bags as Tom got his bearings. Then she found what she was looking for. It looked like a small briefcase. Don't! Tom shouted. I frowned, trying to figure out what the hell was happening as she put in the correct key code and the latches unbolted. Inside there were six syringes filled with glowing yellow serum. She grabbed one and rushed toward the Aussie. I crawled out of the way and into one of the seats as she lunged and pierced his neck, forcing the needle all the way in. I saw Tom's eyes dilate and then go completely black. Then he fell to the floor unconscious. I snatched up his knife just in case things got crazier from here. It was a smart call. Before I got a chance to even ask Isabella what the hell she was doing, she was through the curtain to economy class. I slowly stood up, trying to catch my breath when one of the mutilated passengers grabbed a hold of me, forcing me to stare into their hollow, sunken face. There wasn't even a face there anymore, just a maw with endless teeth. Somehow they transformed into nightmarish beings. I pushed it away and tumbled over Tom to get back to economy class, pausing in between the two cabins to get into the restroom. The small room felt so much more claustrophobic than usual as I locked the door and looked at my reflection in the mirror. Splashing water on my face, I tried to get a hold of myself and chanted, It's all in your head, Max. It's all in your head. I gripped the sink for a minute and felt my breathing return to normal, hoping that maybe I was able to come back to normalcy. Then I noticed something shimmer in the mirror. I looked at it for a short moment, frowning in concern. Then my reflection smiled wickedly toward me. A second later, a strong, icy hand emerged from the mirror and gripped my neck. I was gasping for breath as I felt my reflection strangle me, and I reached into my pocket where Tom's knife was still hidden away. I sliced it across the doppelganger's arm causing strange black slime to bleed out from him as he loosened his grip and I escaped to the main cabin. I was still trying to make heads or tails of what was happening when I caught sight of the twins. After all that had just happened, I could hardly remember their names. Riley? Tanya? All I knew for sure was they were both covered in blood, hobbling toward me with heads. Knives in their hands having carved off each other's skulls, blocking my way to first class. I could hear Isabella shouting something toward a stewardess as I looked back toward third class. The jetliner was shaking violently again, and I heard the captain announce something overhead. Attention esteemed guests, we're entering a rough patch and advise you to buckle up, he said in a voice that sounded too excited for the coming maelstrom. Suddenly, I was thrust at the ceiling. The twins fell upward as well, their bloody bodies toppling like ragdolls as I found myself unable to avoid sliding into them. The airliner shook, and I slowly moved toward the aisle where it all began, trying desperately to regain my footing. Then I heard a low growl from the third-class cabin. I shouldn't have looked. 
Tom's head peered out of the curtain, but what followed it was not human. It had a long neck like a giraffe without skin, and legs that were as wide as the entire cabin, stretching out toward passengers and stepping on them like ants. The legs had mouths like a Venus flytrap shrieking as the strange creature twisted its body like a contortionist. It clung to the ceiling, Tom's pure black eyes looking straight at me as his chest opened up and hundreds of miniature spidery creatures skittered toward me. Holy shit! Isabella shouted as she entered the room. Tom leapt toward her, shrieking as his mandibles ripped into her chest. The plane started to level again and I moved down to my seat, desperately trying to find some way off. All I could think to do was break the window. I still had Tom's knife, and my rattled brain told me to give it a try. Reaching toward the window, I raised it up even as I heard Isabel scream for me to stop. I was expecting to see just the darkness of night. Instead, it was blinding light, hitting me right in the face as I covered my eyes and tried to hit the window. I heard the glass crack, and I kept going as hard as I could. Suddenly, the screams in the cabin were replaced with a roar of a void. Whatever was beyond the window, I had managed to reach it. And now we were all about to be sucked out. I gripped my seat as hard as I could as alarms began to blare. Tom's gargantuan body was the first to go. It was like watching a camel be shoved through a needle hole. His eyes contorted and I heard the breaking of bones. He tried to grab a hold of me, his tongue lapping out and sliding across my face as I heard him mindlessly groan. His front claw grabbed at my hand and I lost my grip my legs hitting the shattered glass as I felt the roar of the plane against my body. It felt like I was a puppet, being dragged by a massive child. I was gripping the window, looking toward the heavens. I can't describe the impossible things I saw in that sky. This was not our Earth, not our reality. It was a kaleidoscope of universes crashing into one another exploding in rainbows of colors that I couldn't comprehend. From the endless ethereal streaks of light and dark, massive tentacles wrapped around the plane like vines, suffocating it. I could see something just beyond the horizon. A maw. The jaws of eternal damnation themselves, ready to swallow me whole. Isabella reached out of the window to grab my hand and struggled to pull me in. I was lost in the gaze of the eyes of the demonic entity that awaited us. As soon as I was inside, I saw that she had another serum prepared. This time for me. You really should have taken that pill, bud. She warned as she stabbed into my arm before I could get a chance to react. The world spun. I saw her face begin to melt away. In its place first was the twins, growing two necks and forming a single monster to grin devilishly at me. Then they faded and showed the geisha woman, except this time her kabuki mask was made of flesh, the remains of her husband. 
Her long claw-like fingernails dragged in my chest as she removed the mask. And I saw my own mother. Her lifeless eyes locked me with my own as I fell into an ocean of sleep. I can't remember what happened next. It felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. I was above the plane now, watching as the tentacles of the monster crushed it and swallowed it whole. The shrieks of passengers. Not just hundreds, but millions from all across reality being fed into this hungry monster's jaws. Then I was back in my seat. The unfasten your seatbelt sign flashed on and I gripped my cushion, looking toward the Asian businessman who is now seemingly alive. How was I alive? I looked down at my arm, rubbing the place where Isabella had injected me. It still felt sore. This hadn't been a dream. I realized as I looked around the cabin. The overhead intercom came on again. Attention passengers, we're about to arrive at our destination. Please remain seated to enjoy the full experience. I felt a squeeze on my shoulder and then Isabella whispered into my ear, Everything you just experienced was real. It just hasn't happened here yet. You need to find Tom and get off this flight. Now. I was about to turn to her when she squeezed my sore spot harder and snapped at me. Don't look back. Don't hesitate. Just run. Then she passed me a gun. Was it the same one the Tom had used before? I wasn't sure. My heart started pumping fast as I unbuckled and moved toward first class. The stewardess were there blocking my way. For some reason, I knew they would try to stop me. So I swung the hammer of the weapon straight forward toward the left one. The two of them slammed into each other and it sounded like two dummies collapsing against one another in a store. I pushed past them to enter the first class seating area. Most of the passengers here were rich upper class, just like any other normal flight. But as I moved down the aisle, I couldn't help but notice the color was drained from their faces. They were trapped in their seats, unable to move. I reached toward one man to try and wake him and his skin became as brittle as ash. They are husks, a voice said in front of me. I turned and looked to see a man standing there wearing a pilot uniform, but nothing about him made me feel that he was human. He might have once been, but now all that remained was this memory. What are you doing to them? I asked, my voice trembling as I searched the cabin for Tom. Isabella's warning was ringing in my head, but I still needed to know more. Only what they signed up for. What you've already experienced. You've cheated, Max. Seen the end of the journey and managed to make it back. But it doesn't matter. The fear we can harvest from your soul is endless. You will never truly leave this flight, he said, taking a step toward me. I clenched my fist and cocked the weapon toward him, letting loose a few rounds into his body. It didn't deter the specter. I'm not even sure why I tried after all I'd seen. 
but it did grab Tom's attention. He stood up and moved towards me. What are you doing, man? Do you want to get us both killed? He shouted. I looked toward the gun. My hands were shaking as I saw a scar was beginning to form on my arm. How would it gotten there? I think we might already be dead, I said, passing him the weapon. The ghost pilot was gone temporarily, but Tom warned it wouldn't matter. God, my head hurts. That drug really did a number on me, he said, rubbing the spot where Isabella had ejected him. How is any of this possible? I said, my mouth dry as he led me back through economy class. This time I saw my doppelganger again, sitting there staring out the window and watching as the jetliner began to shake again. Tom was rattling off an explanation or an interpretation of events to me as we moved on. From what I understand, the plane moves beyond the realm of space and time that we know, past the horizon into a new endless dimension, one where pure chaos is born. The people, if they are that who run this contraption, they're feeding a creature, trying to birth it into reality, this reality that we know of. It's growing stronger, Max. Every new flight is harvesting more memories of reality and fear into it, he said. We were almost at the back of the plane now. No one had stopped us. His explanation made some sense to me as we stood there, and he started to look among the things before commenting. You probably have a dozen other questions about this mess. Like how I know all this and why Isabella, and if that is a real name, is helping us. I don't know. I came on board for my wife. She boarded a flight three years ago, and I'm going to find her. He paused and passed me the weapon along with a parachute. But this is now your journey ends, Max. You've got a chance to get out. Warn the world if you can. Just don't worry about me. If your wife is trapped here, you'll need to give her the serum that we both took. He nodded, nodding me adieu as he left to search the plane. The luggage compartment was oddly silent as the jetliner shook again, and I put on the backpack. I slowly walked toward the back of the plane, near to where the landing gear was stored. It would be the safest place to jump, I realized. I crouched down and gently kicked at the shutters beneath the gear, wondering how strong they were. Then I heard a faint whisper. Someone was there with me. I instinctively jolted up and cocked the weapon. Show yourself! From amid the luggage, I saw a shadow move and slither toward me. Eventually, it formed a shape. The ghost pilot? No. It was a doppelganger of my own mother, I realized. Don't come any closer, I warned her. Her eyes looked so watery and full of pain. Max... It's me. I'm real. This is real. All of it. She whispered to me. It can't be. You're dead. I shouted back. I saw you die! That was just one way my journey ended. It doesn't have to be that way anymore. She said with a gentle smile. The journey has shown me so much. We can have a life together, endless amounts of lives. 
I heard another rustle amid the luggage. It was Isabella coming to check on me. Max, don't listen to her. You have to leave. You can't leave, Max. No one can. Board the flight. You are part of the ship. Another voice cackled amid the rafters. My mother raised a welcoming hand toward me. This can be the life we never got together. She pleaded with me. I knew it was a trap, but it felt so inviting. To be able to escape into an endless cacophony of realities where I could experience the love of a mom I never knew. But none of it would be real, I realized. I steadied my aim and fired straight at her head. The shadow screamed and blurred into a thousand slithering eels as Isabella shouted for me to go. I turned and slammed my foot against the landing gear again and again. The black slime oozed towards me, the screeching eels rapidly closing in for a chokehold. Then finally the metal gave way and I saw clouds beneath my feet. Come with me! I shouted Isabella. After all she'd done to help me, it felt like helping her was the right thing to do. It's too late for me. I'm part of the ship already. But I'll be here to help people get off every damn time. She responded. I reached for her, ignoring her insistence that she was doomed, but instead the shadows ensnared her. And I watched as black slime poured into her eyes and mouth. The shadows began to eat away at her body and I knew I had to leave. Crawling down the landing gear, the rush of air beneath the plane was overwhelming. I heard the screams from the flight roar and didn't hesitate this time. I jumped. Spiraling into the air, I heard the roar of white noise and looked up to see an empty sky, like it had never been there at all. The force of my fall began to increase and I pulled at my parachute cord, feeling it tug and jolt me up in the air. Then everything began to slow. I was drifting amid the atmosphere. Gradually, I made my way to the surface, tumbling about on the soft ground as I got my bearings. I was back at the airfield. Standing up, I checked my watch and realized that not a minute had passed since I'd boarded. I shook off the parachute and stumbled toward the road, watching as some cars approached. I covered my eyes as one car parked in front of me and a man dressed as a British explorer stepped out. What the devil have you been through, my good man? He asked, clearly startled by my appearance. I saw a couple behind him holding tickets, apparently awaiting an upcoming flight. I opened my mouth to tell, to warn him. Then I saw a familiar face in the crowd. Isabella. I moved toward her grabbed a hold of her arm and muttered, Are you real? Is this real? Hey, hands off! What's gotten into you, bud? She said, shaking me off like she didn't know me. I still felt like my head was spinning. You're here for the full moon flight? I asked trying to understand and carefully choosing my words. Yeah, first time. I heard there a scream. You been on one yourself? Isabella asked. I didn't see a hint of deception in her eyes. Slowly I nodded, reaching into my pocket and passing her the pill she'd given me right before I boarded. 
Only she hadn't done that yet. You'll need this for the trip. I told her. She gave me a look of puzzlement and I walked off without another word. I knew there was nothing I could say to even explain how I understood her role now for this. A moment later, I felt a rush of wind and the dark jetliner appeared right behind the hangar bay like it had before. A journey into the unknown. An experience like no other. That's what the reviews say. But that isn't what mine is going to say. This is my review for Full Moon Flights. Don't believe the hype. This event is not just a nightmare. It's evil incarnate. Hello, Bill Band here from the All 80s Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. For your bonus episode, Creepy Presents, I Wish I Would Have Cannibalized My Twin in Utero, written by Calamitous Crustacean and narrated by Owen McCune. I was born into a body that was already inhabited by another. My older brother, whose spirit had possessed the body 18 minutes before me, had already made himself comfortable therein. He had already begun to mold the physical features with the blueprint of his soul, transforming the once indistinguishable infant into his likeness. When we were born, his eyes beheld the world with vividness, while I watched as a passenger from behind the veil. Throughout the body's development, I tried to assert myself as the dominant personality, but my brother, Ben, would not give me even a moment's control. He never acknowledged me, consciously or unconsciously, and I soon came to realize that he was entirely ignorant of my existence. There I was, experiencing all that he experienced, and he was none the wiser. I was a prisoner trapped within a body, and my guard wasn't even aware of my imprisonment. There were moments of severe depression, felt only by me, of course, throughout our teenage years, 
where I had even tried to take forcible control of the body and drive it towards self-harm. These efforts were totally unrealized, and I saw nothing that would have indicated I had impelled the body toward action at all. I had tried to poison Ben's mind with evil, heinous thoughts, but he sensed none of this callousness and didn't exhibit any behavior that would suggest I had influenced his thoughts at all. Despite my inability to act of my own volition or to freely do anything beyond think, I had nonetheless developed my own personality. We were born of the same mother, plucked presumably from neighboring points in some void of pre-existence, and yet our personalities were markedly different. Ben was timid, passively observant, and intolerably introspective. Like our father, he could not come to a decision about anything without spending a considerable amount of time thinking about it. Unlike our mother, he lacked self-confidence. His inexperience with life's riskier, though undeniably enjoyable possibilities, were shared by me. I longed for excitement, but could not obtain it. We were inextricably, terribly linked. Even worse, no one knew of my existence. How I did not go mad from the utter lack of actual socialization is a riddle for the psychiatrist or maybe the philosopher. As we labored through high school, never amounting to anything beyond a forgettable face in a crowd of equally unremarkable faces, I grew increasingly sour. If there's one thing Ben did well, it was maintaining good health. He ate and exercised as if anticipating his inclusion in the Olympics. He would have been a fine athlete and perhaps even achieved athletic acclaim if he hadn't been so shy and self-doubting. I tried to telepathically communicate to him that he should join at least one of the sports teams of the high school, but these intimations never reached him. We graduated high school with decent grades, and Ben was promptly accepted by the college he had applied to during the tail end of his senior year. Things, for me, looked bleak. With Ben's impeccable health and bright future, he was sure to live a long time. That meant I would as well, without any control, influence, or say at all in what the body did. A fate worse than death. A life of complete inaction, without even the mercy of being able to end it myself. A momentous incident brought irrevocable change to our lives during our first college party, held on the night before classes began. We had been invited impersonally by the woman hosting it, who strode around the campus tossing flyers at anyone who happened to be on the grounds. Our father, having gone to the bathroom at one point during the farewell event, even returned to the common area holding a flyer, being mistaken for a student. Ben told our parents that he wasn't going to attend, and our father had agreed with this decision. He suggested that Ben get a good night's rest in preparation for classes tomorrow. Even though they were assuredly going to be introductory, the actual curriculum not started until later in the week. Our mother, on the other hand, suggested that Ben attend, that maybe he might even make a few new friends. How she and my father ended up together, I'll never know. After saying our goodbyes, we sat in our dorm and relaxed. I sensed that Ben was anxious and tried to calm him, even though I knew nothing I did would have helped. While I had no autonomy of my own, and was simply some spectral remora attached to his body, I still felt a duty to try and assuage his worries about the future. He was still, even if he had no idea, my brother. In the end, for a reason not expressed to me, he decided to attend the party. We had met our roommate only once a few hours before, but he had no knowledge of the party and no intention of going once Ben had told him about it. I thought Ben would be discouraged from going, 
having to do so alone, if though he wasn't, technically, but he continued on with the plans. He dressed in his normal fashion, choosing a somewhat faded t-shirt he'd had since middle school and similarly ancient jeans. We arrived at the party a few hours in. Ben had been delayed by a conversation with our father, who decided that the moment was a great time to have the talk. Ben received the bounty of sexual information gratefully, and I was honestly flabbergasted that his skin wasn't made to crawl, as I internally cringed. Knowing no one, Ben wove his way through the crowded lawn without speaking to a single person until he entered the house. It was like the college parties I had seen throughout countless films, albeit less frenetic, with no untamed animals running or flying around. Ben's uneasiness had advanced to anxious unrest, and despite my attempts to placate him, he started to nervously shake. I couldn't tell if it was the sheer social energy of the situation or the sight of the half-naked, sexually expressive women that had put him into the fit. He had, as might be guessed, kept his virginity throughout our life. Thankfully, he'd had enough sense to migrate toward the kitchen, where he would not be beckoned to dance with strangers. Unfortunately, he'd find another kind of offer there. Ben and I had not once tasted alcohol, even when offered by our parents on special occasions. Not only had I lived an inhumanly sheltered life, I had also done so completely sober. A few people who were gathered around an island on which many alcoholic beverages sat called out to Ben, and he approached with a hesitation that made me want to slap him in our face. Before he could protest, a drink was shoved in his hand, and the people who had offered it, a man and two women, lifted their glasses to their mouths. Successfully peer-pressured, Ben did the same, and the four, or should I say five, of us drank the full contents of our glasses. I tasted the alcohol as well, although probably diminished compared to Ben's perception of it. It was bitter and biting, but not bad, and its ultimate purpose was felt shortly after we managed to overcome the initial shock. To my surprise, Ben extended the glass, and it was promptly refilled. We drank with the trio for a few minutes more before they were absorbed into another group that happened to pass through the kitchen, leaving Ben alone but comfortably buzzed. He decided to head upstairs, presumably to investigate the second floor. Even with the inhibition-destroying effects of alcohol acting upon his system, Ben was still unwilling to go out and mingle. We ascended the stairs and found the second floor populated by people playing a video game on a massive TV. This was more Ben's style, being an avid gamer himself, but he shirked this opportunity for socialization as well. I could only guess that he did not want to embarrass himself, believing his skills would be diminished by the alcohol. We passed this entertainment room and headed down the hallway. Even though I would have felt some inkling of it, I assumed that Ben had to use the bathroom and was searching for it upstairs rather than entering the one we had noticed during our time downstairs. We reached a room along the hall and, without knocking, opened it. It was a bedroom, specifically a guest bedroom, judging by the limited decoration and lack of personal effects. On the bed was a woman, dressed appropriately for a college party, plainly unconscious. Her limbs were splayed out across the covers as if she had haphazardly thrown herself onto the bed. A glass was in her hand, but the drink and the ice had spilled out onto the bedsheets, darkly and deeply staining them. I expected Ben to back out, perhaps even apologize despite the woman being unconscious, 
He often apologized when bumping into inanimate objects. But he did something else instead. Rather than leave the room, he stepped in and shut the door behind him. My confusion at this action turned to alarm when he locked the door. It was then that I felt the first real, unfiltered, sincere emotion from Ben. Before, throughout the entirety of our lives, I had only felt intimations, strong suggestions of his feelings. But in that room, after he had locked the door, I received a direct thought, understood with total clarity what he desired. I had mistaken the inaction of a restrained predator for timidity and shyness. Ben hadn't avoided social situations out of a lack of courage, but a fear of consequence if he found himself acting on his urges. I had always thought myself the darker side of us, but realized that I was only so broody because of my situation. Ben was the one who had harbored sick, malevolent desires, and now he had finally had the chance to act upon them. In a single moment, he had gone from my feeble older brother to a terrifying wretch. I would never have guessed that this incident would be the moment in which I physically separated from my brother. I had resigned myself to the role of observer, had ceased to hope for any freedom beyond freedom of thought. But when Ben took his first step towards that sleeping girl, his mind surging with diabolic thoughts, I felt a rage within me unlike anything either of us had experienced. This rage manifested materially, and before Ben could take another step, a hand erupted from his chest. It was a growth rapidly born from the cells of his own body. The hand hung limply from a wrist that protruded from the chest, the half-appendage glistening as if belonging to a newborn. I was terrified. I had thought that Ben's sudden evilness had begun to corrupt his body. But the hand twitched. The weak fingers stretched out, performed a stop gesture. The gesture was a direct reflection of what I had internally screamed when Ben had started to approach the bed lane woman. It was not Ben's hand, but mine. It only took a few seconds for me to engender further physical development. The hand elongated until a full arm had developed, the entire limb steaming and dripping with the slimes of creation. Ben screamed, although I couldn't at the moment tell if it was from shock at the sight or the pain of it. Awakened by the noise, the girl began to scream as well. In the distraction, I forced more of my newborn self into the world until another arm had extended from just below his right armpit, and a head, my own head, rose beside his. We were a freakish two-form amalgamation, but I had, for the first time in my life, become, mostly, my own person. At the sight of my emerging figure, the girl fainted. It was probably for the best, anyway. Turning to Ben, I saw horror in his eyes, and due to our linked forms, some of that was reflected back to me. For me, it was like staring in a mirror, because his appearance is the only one I had ever known. But for him, it was like staring at some nascent form of himself, born of primordial ooze. I have no doubts that at the moment, I looked hideous, if not absolutely terrifying. 
But still, beneath the horror which had almost made him seem a normal person, I saw and sensed the evil of his heart. My sudden physical eruption was not too awesome nor horrific to quell the powerful desires for debauchery that had been awakened within him. My brother, faced with an unreal phenomenon, still felt the impulse to commit a despicable act. This dark realization drove me to attack him. Despite its newness, my partially emerged body had quickly gained a musculature comparable to Ben's. It wasn't much, but I was as formidable to him as he was to me. Without hesitation, without speaking to my brother, I wrapped my hands around his neck, now separate from mine, and attempted to strangle him. I hadn't thought about the consequence of doing so, was determined, even if it would kill me in the process, to end him. His surprise quickly gave way to rage, and he proceeded to claw and beat at my form. We grappled with ourselves, a flurry of limbs striking mostly in self-harm, undoubtedly an absurd and terrible sight. After nearly two minutes of this, my anger allowed me to separate myself further until I fell bodily onto the floor, at last a separate being. Ben stood hunched over, nearly debilitated from what must have been a physically traumatizing experience. His clothes were torn open, although the flesh beneath was still intact. To this day, I do not understand the physiology behind my separation, but I am, nonetheless, thankful for it. I quickly rose to my feet, naked and slimy, but surprisingly coordinated considering the circumstances. Ben stared his face full of unbridled hate. He panted, exhausted from the bout, but occasionally a curse slipped through the troubled breathing. His eyes narrowed, and the hate behind them increased to a truly terrifying degree. I felt as if I had just locked eyes with a true demon. Ben took one last look at the girl, then turned and left the room. It took a few moments for me to shake away the fear which had paralyzed me. The person who had stood before me was no longer my brother, but some Hadian thing, finally free of a nagging, unwanted morality, finally free of me. Realizing how the circumstances now looked, I raided the closet of the guest bedroom, hoping to find something to wear. As if watched over by God himself, I found perfectly fitting clothes, and even a baseball cap to cover my slime-dampened hair. I doubted anyone had taken notice of Ben, even with his tattered clothing, but I didn't want to risk being recognized as having left the room twice, cementing our shared image into the minds of anyone who thought to enter the room and find a passed-out girl. I left the room, scanning the groups of people for Ben's face, while keeping my own as concealed as possible. I saw no signs of him upstairs, and my search for him downstairs was equally fruitless. He had apparently left the party. I ventured to the dormitory to which Ben had been assigned, and after lurking around the entrance, managed to gain access as another tenant entered. I crept up to Ben's room and knocked on the door. As fast as I could on my still-developing legs, I darted down the hall and hid behind a corner. Peeking around it, I saw Ben's roommate emerge, looked both directions down the hall, and then shut the door. I hadn't heard Ben's voice, and the roommate hadn't looked back to address anyone. Ben hadn't returned to the dorm, which meant that he was out on campus somewhere. Without me to restrain him, 
and impelled toward the fullest extent of his diabolism by alcohol. He was a veritable fiend lurking among the innocent and unknowing. My brother, with whom I had bonded in unprecedented fraternity, had become my evil twin. For more information, including pictures and videos of the stories told on this podcast, please visit creepypod.com. If you'd like to submit a story for consideration or recommend a story, please see our submission page at creepypod.com slash submissions. All stories told on this podcast are done so through Creative Commons share-alike licensing or with written consent from the authors. No portion of this podcast may be rebroadcast or otherwise distributed without the express written consent of the Creepy Podcast production team and the story's author. The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Home of Creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. SCP archives with full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from the LGBTQ perspective. The Boo Crew for horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com/podcasts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Item number SCP-5186 SCP-7160 SCP-7533 Object Class Euclid Keter Safe Special Containment Procedures <laughs> Spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust <laughs> The only thing I could hear was 7219 <laughs> laughing <laughs> Do you remember your name? Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.